At the turn of the 20th century, the early 1900s, scientifically advanced techniques were already being used to help women conceive children, although often very covertly. The pressure on both the doctor and the patient could be tense and stressful, and one might ask, at what point does the end justify the means? Hi, this is Valerie Jackson, and I'm going between the lines of The Doctor and the Diva, a novel by Adrian McDonald. Adrian has taught literature and fiction writing at the University of California, Berkeley, and led writing workshops through UC Berkeley Extension and the Cambridge Center for Adult Education. This is her first novel, and it's based in part on the true story of her son's great-great-grandmother. It was chosen by the American Booksellers Association as an indie next notable book and has been sold in 10 countries. McDonald was once a children's librarian at the Boston Public Library, and she now lives in San Francisco. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adrian. I'm honored to be here, Valerie. So which ancestors exactly is the novel based on? The a novel is, uh, it focuses on three characters. There is a, an opera singer by the name of Erica, and she was modeled on my son's great-great-grandmother, who lived in Boston in the early uh, 20th century. And her husband, Peter, is a major character in the novel. And there is a third character who is a fertility doctor in 1903 when the novel begins. And as you say, very few modern readers are aware of the fact that fertility treatments were being practiced in those days, which are very similar to modern techniques Mm -hmm. that are used today by physicians. Well, did your connection to the family make it easier or more difficult to write the story? It really compelled me to write the story. I can remember the first moment that I heard about the great-great-grandmother Erica. I was 19 years old, and it was midnight. I was in Santa Barbara, California, and I was snuggled up against a brand-new boyfriend (laughs) uh, who later became my husband, my first husband. At that moment, we were just getting to know one another, and he said to me, you know, um, my grandfather, who just recently died, when he was a little boy, his mother deserted him, and she ran off to Italy to become an opera singer. And I remember feeling so struck in that moment by two conflicting reactions. One reaction was that I felt very admiring of this woman. I was stunned that a woman could be so far ahead of her time in 1903, that a woman who was part of a Boston Brahmin family would have had the audacity to and and the courage to take herself to another continent to fully realize her artistic gifts. That really amazed me. Well, her husband probably had to be a very interesting man to to work in those parameters. Well, he was an extraordinary man. Um, he was British. He had come to Boston. Uh, to make his fortune as a young man, he was an importer, and he imported Egyptian cotton to the mills in New England. He also uh, imported textile machinery from uh, the Bradford, uh, Manchester area in England to the New England mills. He also was the first man who 
imported chimpanzees to the London Zoo, where he later became mm. a director. So he was really someone who mm. loved to explore, and his business and personal interests uh, took him to four continents. He was a prolific letter writer. So the novel is also based on hundreds of pages of family letters, which gave me access to life a hundred years ago in an extraordinary way. He described in acute detail things like life-threatening storms at sea mm. or um, exotic travels through North Africa or up remote rivers in South America where he ventured and only 40 men of European descent had ever been up some of these rivers going mm. towards a, a waterfall in British Guiana. And he is who you based your character, Peter, on, who yes. is the husband in the novel. Very much so. Yeah, they sound very much alike. Your novel takes place in the early 1900s. So what was the Victorians' attitude regarding women who had problems conceiving back in those days? Well, there really is a very fascinating um, history to uh, fertility medicine research that underlies the, the plot in uh, the novel. And uh, it all started back in, well, a key moment was in 1677 in Holland when a man by the name of Leeuwenhoek uh, invented a microscope that allowed people to see for the first time human sperm. Mm -hmm. At first they didn't even know what they were looking at and then it became uh, pretty clear. And this really opened up a window of possibilities uh, for medical researchers and great potential. And then in 1785 in Scotland, there was a revered Scottish surgeon by the name of John Hunter, who announced to the world that he had succeeded in um, inseminating, artificially inseminating a woman with her husband's sperm and a healthy living infant uh, resulted from this. But in this country, it wasn't until 1866 that a man by the name of John Marion Sims, mm -hmm. who's known as the father of modern gynecology, uh, reported a similar triumph. Uh, it was fascinating to me how even well earlier back in the 1500s and, and, and so forth, they – for a while there, they thought that sperms were just parasites, mm. that they didn't even have a, 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 a use or a focus. So I'm, I'm fascinated about the revelation uh, of that whole science. Why did they – but initially, though, everything was focused on the woman, though. Oh, the yes. woman was the barren one or whatever. Exactly. When did that start to change? For centuries. Well, that, too, really was – revealed the the truth behind uh, men being part of the equation in conceiving children really was um, very much presented to, to the world by John Marion Sims, again, mm -hmm. the father of my, modern gynecology. You asked about Victorian times. And in Victorian times, the uh, fertility issue or the, the problem of being infertile was probably statistically worse than today because of gonorrhea, oh, which yes. was incurable at the time. And so there were many couples who were desperate, and they were willing, even in Victorian times, to uh, cooperate with a tireless clinician like Sims, Dr. Sims, and he would do things like um, stand behind the wall when a couple were in their home and they were making love, 
And then at the crucial moment, he would rush in and do his clinical investigations with his microscope. And he was quite scientific about it all. And uh, he realized that the man really was a, uh, equally, an equal partner in the result or the, the lack of results. I suspect that it might have been a bit of vanity on the male part also mm-hmm. in terms of looking at the woman first. Yes, and also uh, I think it was something that a virile man could not believe. If you were having an, an active physical life with your wife, how could it be that you were unable to impregnate her? Mm-hmm. There must be something within the woman's body that was lacking. Well, the doctor and the diva is centered around, you indicated, three main characters, an extremely talented woman, Erica, her wealthy and dashing husband, Peter, and a bright young Dr. Ravel, known for his success in fertility issues. These people had a very interesting and complex relationship. I I don't know that I've ever heard of one like that. Talk a little bit about Peter um, and his relationship with both the doctor and his wife, And um, we'll get into his uh, role as a father a bit later. Well, Peter uh, is a very important character in the novel. And he says to his wife, Erica, at the outset of the novel, when they are going to see this young pioneer in fertility medicine, we have to develop a special rapport with this man. We have to really befriend him so he'll do his best work for us. So Peter and Dr. Ravel and Erica um, begin to have a friendship that extends beyond the doctor-patient relationship. And there are many plot twists and turns during the novel, so I don't want to give everything away here. Well, let's talk about Erica for a moment. Um, Was her gift um, real in terms of uh, actually she... without giving up too much, had to make a great sacrifice to pursue her career in in opera. Um, Was her gift really uh, that good that one would consider giving everything up to go to Italy to be an opera diva? She did risk risk everything, and by all reports and rumors in in the family and hearsay uh, and opera programs that have been passed down to to, uh, us through the generations, she was... Indeed, um, quite uh, quite a it's singer. Right. And the the issue about Italy was interesting because, of course, she lived during the era of the golden age of opera. And if you wanted to be a great opera singer, young women in New England at that time were advised by, say, a great diva named Lillian Nordica, who wrote <laughs> wrote a pamphlet of advice to young girls. Um, you had to get yourself to Italy. There were 80 opera houses in Italy. What you should do, the great diva Lillian Nordica said to young aspiring singers was, get yourself to Italy, find a maestro, a teacher, train with that teacher for a couple of years, and when you are ready to make your debut, your prova, your test performance, that maestro will find an empresario for you. You need to pay that empresario two or 300 lira, And then the empresario will arrange things for you, Um, will rent a theater for you uh, to perform in. The empresario will hire an orchestra and let you shine 
Now, you have to consider that payment to the impresario as an outlay for your training. And if things go well, you will get paid engagements later on. This was how things were done. So Mm -hmm. this was the plan that Erica and the great-great-grandmother followed. Well, she obviously had someone advising her because the book even describes how she had to find an apartment, if you will, Uh, uh, being a single American foreigner. So... um, the one of the other interesting aspects of her living in Italy was, and I hope I've got the timing here uh, correctly, was her friend Christopher. That was <laughs> that was a wonderful relationship. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, Christopher is her accompanist, and she he is an expatriate who is living in in Florence, and uh, he is gay. And he has two friends with him who are Americans, and and they're living in Florence with him. And and they become her best friends, that trio of gay men. And Erica become very, very close, and they have a great time. They all go to Venice together during the course of the novel. Um, But one thing I did want to add about a woman going to Italy um, and risking everything, Erica was uh, a singer, and if you are a singer, you have a very finite period in your life where your voice is absolutely at its prime. Being a singer is somewhat like being an athlete. And for a mezzo-soprano like Erica, the late 30s in a woman's life or early 40s are really when the voice is at its peak. Mm. So she had to make these these great um, life choices about motherhood versus career that... Women are still, still making today, yes. right, right, right. Well, even though she had an obviously strong desire to do her music, because her music to her was, as she mentions in the in the novel, her uh, the way she expresses her emotions. But I noticed though, there's this ingrained tendency to to want to conceive. You know, I don't know if it was because she had to prove that she was a woman or what, but I noticed that when she observed her relationship. Um, or, or rather observed the relationship of her gay um, friends, the thought that came to her mind was that it was peculiar, not so much, I guess, because of what they were doing, per se, but because the union did not produce a child. Yes. So that that was like, whoa, that's the important thing here yes. to, 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 to Erica. Well, that's the first thought that she has when she discovers that her friend um, Christopher uh, is gay. And she finds this out in a very dramatic way. Uh, so she's struggling, as a woman in, in the Edwardian period yeah. uh, would have, with what does this mean? How does this make sense? This is shocking. And uh, she is trying to reason it all out and quickly begins to accept <sighs> what she has Mm -hmm. observed and and sees. Uh, But I wanted to be sure to put those sort of thoughts into the novel because she isn't living in a time where we've had, you know, gay liberation and people's consciousness is uh, raised Mm -hmm. today. But it wasn't then. Let's talk about Dr. Ravel for a moment, this very, very brilliant young um, doctor um, Harvard grad, distinguished credentials. Um, how was it that he got to be the doctor for Erica? 
Erica, the real Erica, actually, the ancestor, uh, was from a family of very prominent doctors in Boston. Uh, I call them the Von Kessler family in (laughs) the novel. Uh, And there were eight of them in reality. Uh, And some of them were specialists in maternal and fetal medicine or or homeopathy. Uh, But in the very initial scene in the novel, Dr. Ravel um, sees Erica for the first time at a cemetery. He is attending the funeral and burial of a colleague of his, an eminent doctor who's died in his 70s. And Ravel is there in this snowy graveyard with scores of doctors. And he arrives by carriage. Um, He's been late for the funeral and the casket was being um, carried from the church, uh, down the church steps in the very first page of the novel. And he uh, is, he hears someone calling him through the crowd. And it, it later on, you find out it's Erica's brother. But he, he says, Ravel, Ravel, come into our carriage. Ride with us to the cemetery. And when Erica's brother gets Dr. Ravel there in the carriage with him, he says, you must help my sister. Mm. Her husband is obsessed with the idea that they have to have children. He's taken to her to doctor after doctor. They need to stop consulting the old guard. They need a younger man, a pioneer in the latest techniques like you. And Ravel is thrilled. He's under 30 years old. Right. His career is on the rise, and he's standing there beside the, the uh, grave site, mm-hmm. and he's thinking, gee, this is, uh, I am here feeling elated, and yet I'm at, at a, a burial. I, Actually, it's in that, uh, it's in that, um, part of the book that you have a beautiful description of him seeing Erica for the first time. Would you read that for us, please? It's about just about a paragraph long here. Okay. Erica, actually, there's a delay there at the grave site, and snow flurries are starting up. The uh, minister is delaying for some reason. Dr. Ravel doesn't know quite why. And then it's 1903, a black motor car drives into the cemetery and outstep two violinists, and a young woman who is dressed in white, all in white. She's in a white ermine cloak. And the crowd parts for her. She walks up to a platform and begins to sing. She loosened the white fur from her throat. For a moment, she closed her eyes and gathered herself up, and then she sang. The sounds were unlike any Ravel had ever heard. It was not an earthly voice. It was a shimmering. Falling snow melted on her face as he listened. In the valley below, on the distant pond, skaters circled the ice with the legato of her phrases. He wanted those ice skaters to keep going round and round. He wanted the woman's iridescent voice never to stop. Who is she, he wondered. Later, when he heard her name, Erica, it made him think of the words aria, air, as if she breathed melodies. Mm, mm. Well, so Dr. Ravel becomes her doctor. 
Well, if you've just joined us, I'm Valerie Jackson, and I'm going between the lines of The Doctor and the Diva by Adrian McDonald. It's a tale of choice and the consequences of the choices that we make. The main character, Erica, is forced to choose between having a child or an opera career. Well, the role of music is obviously a very, very important one in this book. Were you familiar with opera before you started writing the book? I really was not. Um, this was a great gift from my son's ancestor. To I, I discovered this domain of music uh, that I absolutely love uh, through her and through the research for the, for the novel. And I actually wrote the first draft of this novel over 20 years ago. Hmm. And I was not pleased with it. I tried to stick very, very closely to the exact information I had in family letters. I was not allowing my imagination to soar. Uh, I put that draft in the garage for over 20 years and did not look at it. And then in about 2005, I suddenly realized that I wanted to begin the story through the point of view of this young fertility doctor. And that would be a much better way to enter this story. Mm -hmm. So how did you select the, the particular arias that you named in the book or that she sung in the book? Well, during the 20 intervening years <laughs> after the first draft, I listened endlessly to uh, operas and arias. And I listened at night when I'm chopping onions, making dinner. You know, the house was constantly filled with um, opera music. And uh, as I was writing the story and researching, well, actually, I... The second time, when I began again, the second iteration, <laughs> right. I did another year's worth of research uh, into all kinds of things. Hunting for apartments in Florence in 1910, uh, the history of medicine, opera. Uh, and as I was doing the research, scenes would come to me. I would hear voices, I would hear conversations, and I would quickly jot down what people were saying, and I'd throw those scenes into a box. I didn't worry about where they were going to be sequenced in the novel. And sometimes, as I was listening to an aria, an idea for a scene would come to me. Your story travels between Boston, Trinidad, and Florence, Italy. Uh, how did we get to Trinidad in here? Well, that coconut plantation in Trinidad uh, was an exquisitely described um, place in the lives of uh, some of the characters in the novel and in the family letters, I knew I had to work it in to this story. It was so rich. And there was so much beautiful sensory detail about uh, life on this plantation that was located 15 miles from any other human habitation in the first uh, decade of the 20th century. And so... I used what was in the letters um, as I was creating and dramatizing this story. When Erica and Peter go to see Ravel, who is at this point through dramatic uh, um, incidents in the novel, uh, finding himself no longer in Boston, but as a manager of the coconut plantation, they go to visit him and they drive there along a beautiful beach with for 15 miles, they drive in a buggy, and the sands are hard as pavement. 
And when they arrive at the coconut plantation, it is a beautiful um, play, an, a place of great natural beauty. There is a, a lagoon with manatee in it, and there is a tropical forest that has red howler monkeys making sounds <laughs> like lions. There's the chatter of green parrots. I knew what the they were eating at night for dinner. They were eating freshly picked oysters that had been plucked from the mango trees in the lagoon. Was this in the letters, too? This is in the letters. This is all actual Mm. information about Mm -hmm. what life was like Mm. at that time. Well, the descriptions of the Trinidad Island were absolutely lush and beautiful, but the novel really deals with a lot of, well, unpleasant things. Love and lack of love, marriage, adultery, guilt, medical ethics, parent-child relationships. Um, in, should we, can we say that, that Erica does, in fact, have a child? Oh, I, yes. I don't want to give away too oh, much. Oh, yes. Good. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, well, Erica uh, experiences some tragedies during the course of the novel. And it's, I think, a novel that both celebrates the joys of life, the sensory pleasures of life, the beauty of music, a woman's struggle to become an artist. But it also delves into the great angst of being a woman, especially of her era, where when she made the decision to have, well, at the beginning of the book, she is secretly planning to leave her husband and go off to Italy to have a career because she's given up hope that she's going to have a child. And then through Dr. Ravel's help, um, there is eventually a child um, who is hers, and she has to make this great choice about whether to leave the young child and have this career or whether to give it all up and be tethered to the home base in Boston and watch her dreams evaporate. She makes that choice. Where did you find the family letters that you frequently oh, reference? Yes, that was an interesting part of all of this. I, um, After I heard about the Erica character when I was 19, there I was in Santa Barbara, and as fate would have it, um, I married this boyfriend at the time a few years later, and when I was 22, we moved to Boston, and my first job, was at the Boston Public Library, which was uh, located just two blocks away from the house where Erica wow. had grown up. Mm. So every day on my way to work, I passed by on Commonwealth Avenue, uh, first of all, the house where the young Peter lived when he first came from Britain to America. And then I continued in his footsteps down Commonwealth Avenue another six blocks or so to the house where Erica grew up. And I would go up to the door and there was a glass pane and I could peer inside and see the mosaic tile in the the foyer where Erica's foot had been placed as she'd enter the family home. I saw where her father's, the little door on the ground level where her father's patients entered his private Mm -hmm. practice. And I could see that very little had changed in this house um, since the 1880s, 1890s as I was peering in. Well, it's a fascinating story. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
Thank you for such a beautiful interview. Well, great. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I've been talking with Adrienne McDonald. Her book is The Doctor and the Diva. Between the Lines is brought to you in part by Jack Mott Hospitality and a generous anonymous supporter. We thank you. To learn more about the books and authors featured on Between the Lines, go to our website at wabe.org slash btl and listen to an archived program. Or check out our suggested reading list for both children and adults. To subscribe to a podcast of the program, go to our website and click on Podcast. Be sure to join us next week for another engaging program because there's always more to learn when you go between the lines. The executive producer of this program is Lois Reitzes. Producer, Marjorie Lancer. Editor and technical producer, Mike Johns. Opening and closing music by Afro Blue. And I'm your host, Valerie Jackson. Between the Lines is a production of 90.1 WABE. Thank you.